Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra. We pay our respects to Elders from all nations listening today, and to their Elders past, present and future. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're pleased to bring you Evelyn Araluen in partnership with Kill Your Darlings for their March 1st book club. In conversation with Brunswick Bounds' Ellen Cregan, Evelyn spoke about Drop Bear, Family, Rage, May Gibbs, and turning one poem into a collection. There are a few swears here, so just be aware if you're listening with young children. Thanks so much for the lovely introduction, Megan. Hi, everyone. I'm Ellen. I am the first book club host. Um, and here tonight we have with us the lovely Evelyn, who is a poet, researcher, and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Her widely published criticism, fiction, and poetry has been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship, and a Neilma Sydney Literary Travel Fund grant. Born and raised on Darug country, she's a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Evelyn. I'm very excited to chat to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. So the um, the session's going to be also incredibly excited too. Just hello, puppy. Hurry. So the session's going to run. We're going to Evelyn and I are going to chat for about thirty minutes, and as Megan mentioned, there'll be time for questions after that. So if you have any questions at all, just pop them in the chat, and I'll read them out um, when we get get to that stage. And we're just going to start with a reading. So Evelyn, go ahead with that whenever you're ready. Yes. Okay. My apologies, guys. I'm still learning where everything is in the book. Um, and I just wanted to begin by also paying my respects and acknowledgement to uh, the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I'm very lucky to be a guest here on their country and I'm incredibly grateful for their ongoing custodianship and care for this place. Uh, it's kept me safe. It's kept my dog safe. And so um, it's a very... Um, it's a very powerful thing uh, to be a guest on such beautiful country and I hope that I'm doing my part here respectfully. Uh, so I'm going to read um, this poem, Drop Bear Poetics, and Miri is getting herself comfortable for that. <laughs> Titalik say, I'm such great thirst, I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Bunyip say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step waters where I sleep and with wet claws, I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the Mopoke say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write black snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm going to be to every fucking post-mod blinky bill trying to crack open my country. Mining in metaphors, that place you felt felt you somewhere in the Royal National. Wagen says use heart, but I am rage and dreaming at the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry estate antique. All this pot planting in our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're taking that talk, you've got to scrape it from my schoolhouse walls. Filter gollywog ashtray, snuggle put kitchen to your pastoral deconstruct. Fill four and twenty pies with artisan magpies. If you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming for making liar the liar bird. For making my medic the power Bayami gave when ribbons mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust, creation breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong. You get gobbled up. And I'm going to read another poem from the collection, which is um, uh, actually kind of a found poem. Um, a lot of the lines actually come from, or well, they're adaptations 
of lines from uh, Mae Gibbs's Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie books um, and a couple of other uh, from her Bib and Bub series and um, general assorted writings. And it's called Mrs Kookaburra Addresses the Natives. Humans, please be kind to all bush creatures and don't pull flowers up by the roots. And please be gentle to little ragged blossom of blessed tender heart, loved, beloved by bush and its folk, a wee speck of blushing babe, of lovely, important sadness. We mustn't forget little Abelia, held in guard by a thousands of rainbow fish and a charming seaweed estate. She is a shiny white pearl burst open near the pleasant size of little ragged blossom who goes off to visit her in the sea. Humans, you remember how in the killing of the wicked Mrs. Snake, the bush became joyful and rich Mr. Pilly, the father of Lily Pilly, the actress, gave a dinner party at the Gum Inn. Such festive spirits we were in and against as Snugglepot and Cuddlepie held corroboree for the native bears at White City, which the evil wicked Banksia men called Kurijika, a foul old word we don't say here. Humans, now tell me, do you really think all the bad Banksia men were deady bones when they went to the bottom of the sea in the great fight with Mr Lizard and Mr Eagle and Cuddle Pie? Not deady bones, not a bit, for it was just last Cheap Tuesday at Lily Pilly's Picture Palace that the nasty, dark and dry cones burst terrible into the room. Snatching up Nittasing and Nani Wass and Jindy Warraback, perhaps in revenge for Mrs Snake or her aunt and mother-in-law and three cousins, and surely would have gobbled them whole were it not for Mr Lizard and brave and strong Nutty Bub. How blessed we are in this delightful bush, which lends its dappled light to our important tales, so that we might share with our little nuts how frightened we were of those straggly, godless fiends. What fun it was to see their eyes plucked out by those fearsome red-tailed cooks that they called the foul old word we don't say here. Thank you so much, Evelyn. That was excellent. Oh, wow. And those, I asked you to read those two poems because they were just, I mean, there were a lot of poems in this collection that really stuck with me and I reread a few times, but those two in particular I just thought were so clever. And I didn't realise the found element of... Um, that sort of May Gibbs one, but now I totally see it because it's such a, um, you know, it's such a mimicable voice that May Gibbs yeah. voice that kind of terrible 20th century Australiana thing. And it's, it, if I'd written it as like a direct poem, like as, as, you know, with my own, all of my own references and things, it would have been way too obvious, but there are really, you know, phrases like you have white city and, the, um, there really is a scene in which the native bears hold corroboree. Um, so there's all kinds of just really weird stuff that would definitely not, um, wouldn't make it past a sensitivity reader these days. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so can you give us, for, for those of us who haven't read the book, can you maybe summarise it and what it talks about and how it talks about that? Yeah, so um, Drop Air is a collection of poetry, personal essay and a little bit of prose, uh, um, prose style writing, uh, generally constellating around my relationship with place and country, uh, both as an Aboriginal person but also uh, as a person who is um, growing up in a distinctively textual and literary world. So it's a reflection on um, the different books that my parents uh, raised me with. And it's important to note that um, the books that they, uh, you know, that, that uh, I learned to read with, they're all active choices because my parents didn't inherit any books from their family. So um, I, I interviewed mum and dad a lot. I talked to a lot of older Aboriginal people as well about some of the representations that... Um, they uh, they were having to work through as they were raising Aboriginal children in a settler colonial world. And, um, you know, some of the poems are satirical. Um, they're trying to be cheeky about the general phenomenon of misrepresentation, appropriation and exploitation of Aboriginal land and bodies. 
but there's also a lot of um, painfully sincere discussion around family, um, rage, political rage, and the legacies that some of these texts and representations have had on a lot of contemporary uh, and, and young Aboriginal people now trying to work out their own voice and trying to um, understand how they relate to a fundamentally hostile environment. Great summary. Um, that's, yeah, it, um, that's a really tricky thing for people. I can imagine that's a really tricky thing for people coming of age now and sort of looking back through, especially the early childhood when there aren't, these great books that kids have now that have maybe a better representation of culture and of things like that mm-hmm. and how you can get yeah, the maybe the nostalgia factor would like it just seems so difficult yeah and I think that like um it's like a really beautiful thing to be able to raise um raise mm. Aboriginal kids with so many beautiful and amazing Aboriginal stories but it's not to you know it, it, it I was also raised with a really strong level of critical thinking because of how my parents were trying to unpack those representations with us so they were the ones who were always saying like yeah Banksy and men are racist and this yeah. and that is is problematic and so that's something that I feel like that must have been so disorientating for them because that's an added sort of parental responsibility that you don't necessarily um, you don't necessarily always understand. Um, but it was uh, it was a very powerful thing, and I'm ultimately, and I I hope it's represented in the book. But like ultimately, I'm incredibly grateful for them for the efforts that they did make to to um, explain that world to us. And that's such a gift that they gave you. That that's such a special thing to grow up with. That critical thinking, and especially as you say, in a, in a world that is essentially hostile. Mm. Um, mm. So that yeah, I think that's really wonderful. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky. Yeah. Uh, so the poems in this collection, we just read a couple, and as you say, they take a lot of different forms. So we do have some prose poems. We have lots of formal experimentation, and it kind it it does vary throughout, which makes for very fun reading. Um, How did you decide on the form and style you use in your work and how you kind of lay it out next to each other? Uh, Nobody ever told me how to write a poem. I am still trying to get that explanation. Uh, So when I was developing this collection as like an actual body of work as opposed to like a sort of a a handful of, of poems. So Drop Bear Poetics is the very first poem that I wrote that like shaped the conceptual framework of this book um uh but I was like you know I was doing a mentorship with Tony Birch and Mm. uh and he's an amazing poet and I love his poetry and I remember like the first meeting that I had with him I was like hey so how do you write a poem he's like I don't know they never told (laughs) me either um so um it was it I still really do feel like I I'm kind of just floating with my technique and style, um, but I'm enormously influenced by the incredible, incredible First Nation poets, um, not just here but also globally, and they um, really strongly shaped the work that I developed around these ideas. But there was a really active research process for a couple of months that involved me going through a lot of archival material, a lot of really old books, um, and then that turned into... Um, uh, so some are response poems, some are really explicitly um, attempts for me to kind of engage with canonical texts and things. So some of them, um, you know, like the poem, like um, Mrs. Kookaburra addresses the natives. I do kind of consider that almost like a found poem. Um, and then others like there's some, there's a couple of like two very long sequence prose poems, The Last Endeavour and The Last Bush Ballad, which are um, just basically those were my dumpings of um, just brain matter from reading and consuming all this stuff. So I was initially quite worried that there was so much stylistic variation across the poems, and I remember when I was having early conversations with publishers, I thought that that would be like a hindrance I thought that I would have to kind of stick to one style or form and then maybe um some of the other pieces would then just have to be like 
published online or something like that. But I think texts like Alison Whitaker's Black Work really mm. set like a new precedent for how a poetry book can look, um, particularly when it's thematized and um, it's a- attempting to kind of like its coherence comes from uh, like a political or social or a cultural assertion as opposed to a stylistic conversation. So I don't think I would have been able to publish it as it is a couple of years ago, but, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, my work is always just following the black women that have paved the way before me. So, um, you know, I'm just grateful that it's in that conversation of, of incredible writers trying to push those dialogues forward. Totally. And Alison Whitaker is a remarkable writer. That's a really excellent book, Black Work. Oh, she's terrifying. You know, she's she's <laughs> one month she's one month younger than me. And I remember when I found that out. I that never feels good, like, does it? <laughs> oh, but you're so good. You're so so yeah, I had a crisis. I've but a so are you. You're that. also great. <laughs> yeah, but there's this there's like the work that you do and that like you you're you're always doing like trying to catch up to the people that have inspired you. Absolutely. And um, you know, yeah, um, she's just been doing really incredible shit. Um, uh, shouldn't swear, but she's been doing really <laughs> stuff for a long time. So very grateful for her and for a lot of other um, black women in this space for really making the work that I do possible. Definitely. And I think one of the things that you do gain when you have a collection like this where there is so much form that, to sort of move through is you're able to, I'm, this is me speaking as a reader, I felt like you drew me through all these different emotional responses to poems and you were able to, there was so much restraint in some and then others, like in the prose poems, you mentioned that you, that you said you were kind of just reacting and putting all of your thoughts into this long, this quite long, almost like narrative poem that really, I really felt like very situated in that poem. Like I was really in that world and it was kind of just, you know, I was able to be fully immersed and, a poem like that is so special, but also is a poem that is very, you know, beautiful and ornate and maybe a bit more restrained and a bit more of a, of a sort of snapshot. And I think that's one of my favourite things about this collection is that you kind of get drawn through all these different worlds in this beautiful way. Thank you. I, particularly for some of those ones where I do know that there is like a level of intensity are you always worry that people are just going to pass over those um, and those are going to be the ones that like you'll get like a very small handful of people who'll take the time to um, go through them and like that's not to say like oh I think these poems deserve more time than I would otherwise expect from a reader and in that kind of entitled way but um, you know some of those prose poems are informed by like a very rich and detailed archival history and it, I, I was absolutely in just like a completely different mindset, a very immersive mindset when I, you know, like I would have to basically lock off all distractions and just pour myself through books and journals and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I know that they're, they're an intense thing to read as well as, you know, as to write. So I'm just so grateful that people have actually had the patience with the collection. Um, a few people have said that they read it in one sitting and I feel really sorry for them because I wouldn't, I, I, I don't know if I would do that. Um, that should probably be a warning on the front. But, um, yeah, the the support from people has actually been, like, such an encouraging thing about, you know, like not just about, like, my own ambitions for this book but also like yeah like what a poetry collection can be in Australia now and in the future I think is like going in some really promising directions absolutely and this is I didn't quite read it in one sitting but I came close but it's a really gripping book and you don't often like I would never say that about a poetry collection or maybe one or two that I've read in the past but it really holds on to you and you really want to you know, it's a page turner, which is not a term we often use for poetry. So I think it's, yeah, I can totally understand where those one sitting people came from. (laughs) I just feel really sad for them. I'm like, wow, that's probably not a good mental health experience. Apologies (laughs) to anyone that I've caused unnecessary distress to. (laughs) Um, So how did you bring the collection together? Did you write everything as one sort of project or did you bring curate things in from previous works? Um, Yeah, more and more 
um, I found myself stripping back previous pieces. Um, uh, so for some reasons, you know, sometimes they just didn't, they didn't work with the overall intentions of the project. And then I'd say there's like a handful of poems that I didn't necessarily write them with a really clear notion about where they fit into the collection. So there's, there's like one, you know, one called Hold um, that was really just a very much like the cathartic kind of like you have to write that poem about your first love, that kind of thing. And that that doesn't enter so much into the broader conversation of the work. And then there's a few that I wrote for um, different commissions and projects over the years that um, I, I, you know, like when I had I had this sort of process of studying other collections I found myself really valuing poems that allowed a reader to kind of take like a little bit of a break from the emotional or intellectual intensity of, of a collection. Um, and they just kind of like are there like places where you can like, you know, you can, you, it's almost like you can rest for that, that time mm. with a poem. And so I did actively choose to keep in things that were not necessarily as thematically linked um, but a lot of it was, um, you know, I, 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 I had like a really good support network of writers and people to be talking about this project with over a period of like a couple of years. So um, I knew that I wanted, um, I knew that I wanted an overall kind of narrative that I ended up expanding a little bit. So the sections that begin with a car trip out of the Hawkesbury. And I wanted it to kind of end on a trip back into the Hawkesbury, but I did a research trip um, to the UK mm. uh, just before the pandemic. And there really were just like, that was a transformative experience for me. Uh, not one that I necessarily liked. And I know that's the mm. most privileged and entitled thing to say that I didn't like my first travel experience. Um, it's very obnoxious, but um, I found it a bit traumatizing in certain ways. And there was no place to fit that into the convenient narrative or the, the, the sort of the conceit of this drive in and out of my home. Um, so that, you know, that just became a part of like, this broader, more ongoing project of, of the work, which was trying to also negotiate a pandemic and, uh, you know, like a national ecological crisis, which is also a global um, crisis. Uh, so Ellen Van Even was my editor and was amazing and had just yeah. amazing insights about the structuring of the book. Um, and also Felicity Dunning at um, UQP, who then kind of had the unfortunate nitty gritty job of finding all of my typos, working <laughs> with her at such like a direct level. Like I was, I thought we had the order. I thought we had, you know, all of that. But when, when, you know, somebody turns around and says, hey, you can have this version of the poem, but you've got one line that's going to have to go on to the next page. Um, that actually created like a really interesting and enjoyable challenge to mm. have to renegotiate some of those pieces to fit certain constraints. Um, so I, I actually, like I, you know, I looking back on it now, like it, it, I feel like I enjoyed most aspects of the project. I didn't. I know for a fact that I didn't and my memory is lying to me and I found it pretty torturous and I'm, I don't understand people who just pump out bodies of work constantly. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the benefit of support networks. That's the benefit of really encouraging and inspiring people around you. So, um, yeah, it was a strange process, one that, um, yeah, I expected that I would be, every time I looked at it, I would have constant changes and edits that I wanted to make and I'd always be rewriting this book in my head. Um, there was one poem that I couldn't get finished to get into the collection and I've made my bed, you know, I've, I've made, you know, peace with that. And then I, you know, every word is where it's meant to be really, I think. That would be tough. And I can imagine because, you know, this is a really, this is a really emotional body of work. And as you said, um, particularly the poems that, that are reflecting on that time you did spend in England and, and the sort of, things that you were visiting there and what you saw and what you were reflecting on that would be 
a super emotionally taxing thing to write about because you do, you know, there's so much of you in this book. We've never met, but I feel like a connection to this. It's so, it is. Oh, so yeah. Anyone who reads yeah. this is a bestie now. You're, you're <laughs> my, either my best friend or you're my greatest enemy. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not your greatest enemy. <laughs> um, it's, it's the neighbor's dog. Don't worry. You're yeah. fine. <laughs> um, so just to go back to community, in the acknowledgement section of this book, there's a very lovely long list of um, you thanking some First Nations elders that you were working with and whose words you were sort of reflecting on and writers of course that you worked with and editors can you talk a little bit about what it means to be supported by this writing community as somebody working in this industry yeah um so really the the honest thing is that like I can kind of just pinpoint down the moment um that that was just the most significant shift in my career and in my in my you know work as a writer and that was um I I got shortlisted for the Nakata Brophy Prize in like 2016 or something like that um and it was like it was literally the first poem I'd ever written and I wrote it in my TAFE Bantalan class and it was like a, a kind of experiment that um you know my my teacher encouraged um uh so um you know that that didn't expect it to go anywhere but um when i was shortlisted ellen van neven found me on facebook and was like sis this is so exciting you know you congratulations this is really encouraging and i was terrified and i couldn't respond to them for weeks because i was just like oh my god what do i do what do i do with myself so um i yeah i i kind of just panicked and um ellen is is just like one of the loveliest and most generous people in the world. So um, my career has been like um, all of the great and amazing things about it have been because of the great and amazing black writers. Um, it's really not a competitive space at all. And I assumed that there would be some kind of idea of like literature and publishing as deeply competitive and really like the only times I've ever seen any of that hostility is when we're all just frantic and exhausted because we just don't have enough funding to go Mm. around yeah it's literally like everybody wants to embrace everybody else's work and support everybody else's work um but the funding situation and in the broader humanities does create like a terrible strain so um you know it's it's been wonderful like I, I had like, you know, beautiful networks of, of elders and community that, that got me to be the kind of person that could have the voice that if I was supported in a writing career, I'd have interesting things to say. Um, but yeah, I really just do think that um, it was no institution, it was no organisation, it was literally just the naked honesty and care and sincerity coming from people who in a careerist sense, would have no need to encourage me. But just mm. because of that love of literature and that love of other mob in the space, um, you know, made such a profound and lasting difference on my way forward as, as a writer. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people I think in the acknowledgements. It's pretty long. Um, it's but beautiful. there's there's more still. There's always more. There's always yeah. more behind them and, you know, the people that encouraged and inspired them. It's like a really beautiful chain of um chain of of storytellers and everyone involved at every level you know the publishers the booksellers the writers the reviewers like it's all wonderful you know such a such a beautiful thing to do with our lives um Mm. it makes it just I think like particularly after the hellish year that we've all had um it makes the burden of existence a lot nicer and there is a lot of there truly is a lot of love in the literary space, in the Australian literary space, and particularly in the First Nations literary space. It's just we're so lucky to have so many incredible First Nations writers in it who are getting who are getting a platform now, and that to me is one of the shining lights of the future of Australian literature. As you said, like what a collection of poetry can do mm. on these kind of themes. I don't think a lot of other countries have that the way that we do now and of course things can improve but it is a really positive thing I think yeah yeah and I think we should be like really happy and Mm. um, positive about about the transformations that 
have occurred in the industry, always grateful for the people who pushed for those. And then, um, yeah, just constantly building for even more and, you know, more inclusivity, more, um, more experimentation, more innovation, like all of that in the future. Absolutely. And it, it does feel like at the moment it's, it's a lot of authors who are consciously building that platform for the next people to come along. There's no, there's no holding on to power in this quite horrible, you know, um, petty way. It's very much, as you said before with Alison, like you're trying to catch up to the people who came before you, but the people who came before you are leaving something there for you mm. to sort of be launched from, which is really yeah. nice. Well, I think that's, that is like, that is itself like an Aboriginal method yeah. um, that you're always honouring the people who came before you, making room for the people who are coming next. And you know that in that kind of structure, you'll be looked after and you mm. don't need to, you don't need to, um, you don't need to necessarily constantly insist on putting yourself forward um, in that kind of structure when we can trust those relations. So that's why like there is like a really active attempt throughout the collection to be talking to my parents, to be talking to elders um, and reflecting on what they have to teach about these stories and representations so that what I say about them is um, is always shaped by that respect that I have for the fact that, um, you know, like there's a bit in one of the latest later poems slash essay bits where I, I say that, you know, like they chose these books but they chose them because they wanted to tell us something about the country that we lived in. They wanted mm. us to have images that we had some connection to um, and they chose them because they wanted us to be able to read. And so um, what I hope in terms of what I can give to those who are to come next is like, clearing away a little bit of the debris that gets in the way of the ways in which we earnestly love and engage with our country and culture and identity and representations. Um, because when we unpack a bit of that and we have like some of that deconstruction work occurring, it does just leave a bit more room for people to just unironically, you know, love something, engage with something and create stories about that um, so, yeah, you know, that's my attempt to kind of engage in that structure of, of caring and responsibility in the collection. Totally. Yeah, I think that definitely comes through in these poems. So I want to just go a little bit to the side and talk about the way that you write history. Um, so I'd say these poems, there's definitely a nonfiction history element to several of them. How do you approach writing history in this in a poetic format? Yeah, um, I think it's uh, it's important to have a kind of acknowledgement around the literariness of historical writing in Australia and the historical archive that we do have. This is actually work that my dad does a lot of research around. Um, but if you look at like the journals of like Cook and What Content and all of these, um, you know, these early writers who shape in such an explicit way shaped. Mm not just like a, a kind of aesthetic characterization of Australia, but also like political and cultural ideology that would go on to influence policy, that would influence the development of an Australian national culture. You do have to acknowledge that there is just like such a bizarrely poetic and literary stamp on all of that. And um, reading things like, you know, um, the journals of, uh, you know, Philip and Mitchell and stuff, I'm constantly struck by um, the, the sort of the poeticism of that language. Mm. Um, and so uh, attempting to kind of chart some kind of literary history uh, that aligns with invasion and settlement and dispossession and displacement was uh, kind of a way of me trying to spell out some kind of psychonarrative of the way that Australia was responded to and conceived of. So we have early, from a really, really early period, we have this registering of the Australian landscape as something gothic, something mm. barren and unyielding to human labour. Uh, and that is a characterization that I think has had a number of like political and social implications. So my attempt in this book 
is to basically just to haunt the same thing back, like to try to um, explore uh, how like you can fight poeticism with poeticism. So there is, you know, it's like I wouldn't say that understanding it or, or like, you know, seeing it um, spelt out is necessary for how the collection is read, but there is a conversation between the two quite long archival prose poems, The Last Endeavour and The Last Bush Ballad, where you have this like seal that was the uh, the secret orders that um, was actually, I believe it was given to Philip, it wasn't given to Cook. Um, and I kind of wrote it as a sort of, a, a flu, like a fluidity between every one of those, you know, major explorer figures. Um, and the the secret orders were about how the natives should be treated. And um, for my own shits and giggles and as a way of registering the actual kind of cultural impact of that, I turned it into, I, I turned that, those orders into like literally like a box of ghosts that um, came out. And so in the last poem of the collection, you have this... Um, this kind of bizarre genesis and mutation of what those ghosts, what has occurred to them after living on stolen land for 200 and something years. So um, it kind of makes sense in my own weird twisted little head. And like, I've, you know, um, I read a lot of history for this, but I have also taught um, Australian and indigenous history for a Mm. while at the university of Sydney. Um, And when you realize just how literary it all is and how unreliable so much of it is, there's no, you don't have to respect any kind of factual uh, factual integrity because it's not there. So making weird poems out of it, you might as well do that. You know, people made horrendous and violent genocidal policies out of it. They made tea towels out of it. Like there's nothing holy about Australian history. It's all just haunted basically. Yeah, absolutely. And um, those early accounts are so you know there's so much ugliness to them but it is in this really strange strangely beautiful way that they've been written out and the fact that so much has been attached to them as you say as factual is really surprising because it's you know that it's it's just not <laughs> even mm. in the way that it's presented it doesn't it doesn't read like nonfiction. no no yeah. um and I think a healthy level of cynicism. Like I would like people to have problems with this book because they're like, oh, you're misrepresenting yeah. history. I'd love that. I would love people to go back and have and, and see how much of this is responding to, you know, specific literary journals, uh, like, you know, literary accounts and journals yeah. and things. Um, it's a, it, it is absolutely um, uh, intended to provoke that kind of, that kind of response and hopefully that gaze will be turned on the archive at some stage. And I think poetry and especially these poems, it, it has that potential to get into that, that sort of uncomfortable space where you can be a little bit subjective and you can, you know, as I was saying before, you really like put me in that scene in that long prose poem. Like I was there when I was reading and you can't do that with the way that nonfiction is now where it's so dry and so, you know, proving the sources and the footnotes. Not that I don't love a footnote yeah. in a poem. I do love that. Mm. But, um, yeah, it lets you get into that sort of liminal space between reality mm. and and what the poet is perceiving now. Mm. I, really think cool. more, I think we should be doing more of that. I think mm. that is um, it's a better way, of, like it's a more honest way of thinking about how people actually engage with history. Um, people don't remember a timeline, but they remember an experience or they remember an idea or an association. And I think that should be um, a part of that praxis. But we're all, like, I think a bit scarred from the impact of, you know, the black armband, culture wars and all of that. And so we're all, all so nervous about being ever being perceived as getting the history wrong or not doing enough with our sources. Um, and my response to that is just a very plain and simple, fuck it, we're at the end of the world anyway. Who cares about, <laughs> about that? Yep, write poetry while you still can. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to move on to some audience questions now because we've just been chatting away for quite a long time. Um, so I'm going to start with one from Joanna. Evelyn, thanks for your readings and your drop there. Just wondering how strict you are with collage, pre-existing text only or a combo of your words and found words? Uh, very good qu- question. And also, hello, Joanna. 
so lovely to have you here. Love all of your work. Um, Joanna is very, very incredible and you should definitely look up some of the stuff that she has been doing about storytelling, particularly for people who are incarcerated. Um, uh, so there is um, a really, uh, yeah, I'd say that in terms of like direct quotation in this book, there's probably like five or six sentences, not even sent, not even complete lines that are themselves like direct intentional quotations. And we had a conversation, the publishers and I had a conversation and, and we did make a really conscious effort to uh, indicate where all of those have been cited. But the majority of the ways in which I kind of like use intertext, the majority of the way in which I use intertextuality throughout the collection is really very much attempting to ironise or to um, make apparent certain things, uh, certain issues or elements um, that were not always apparent in those contexts. So I do have to create like my own variations and things. Um, certain, certain texts I like, I don't, I've, I've kind of like made gestures to or quotations of assuming that there was like a really broad kind of familiarity with some of those lines and then I panicked um, worrying that people don't know that, you know, like there's a line in one of the poems, don't say reconciliation action plan, say fuck the police, which is a quotation or, or it's like a reference to a really famous Sean Bonney poem, um, A Cab Lullaby. Um, and so I never want people to think that I'm attempting to plagiarise or anything like that. That's that's definitely not something that's going on. But I'd say that there are like, I would have read like, you know, specifically for this collection, including children's books. I probably would have read about 60 different books. Um, uh, so there's a lot of that research in there. But, yeah, I could pick out on any page, even if it's a page which is almost like completely my own words and there's no even references to anything else. Um, uh, I could I could unpack where everything's come from and where everything's been, um, uh, what sparked that particular thought or notion. And nobody will ever ask me to do that because it will take forever. But um, I'm pretty I'm pretty meticulous around direct plagiarism, but I have a lot of fun messing around with things. So like there's a poem called Fern Up Your Own Gully. Um, a lot of that's uh, jokes about the um, trailer for uh, the Fern Gully film, um, and you can find you can find all of that stuff on YouTube, which is a weird trip once you, you teach your YouTube algorithm that kind of Australiana old stuff. So um, I don't recommend it, but it can be fun. So yeah, the, the very complex answer to that is I can assure everyone that there's no plagiarism in the book. Um, but every page is informed by, like, a lot of reading um, uh, and my own weird contemplations of that reading. So, yeah. And as, a, as my reading experience, you also kind of play collage with, um, with phrases and, like, phrases in the cultural kind of moment that we're having so acknowledgement of country I love that poem so much but you're really you are using that collage that's collage or found word approach with with you know the that sort of cultural appropriation and and those empty you know pre-meeting acknowledgement of countries that we've all sat through um I just love that so much and the way that you you take these things that we're also familiar with because they just repeat so much in our lives and you made mm. it into something really impactful I thought that was great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, another question. Congrats on your book launch, Evelyn. Can you please advise what age Drop Bear is for? I've put it on the request list of my local library to read it to myself as an adult, but I'm also interested in the nieces and nephews reading it at some stage too, but at the right stage. That is actually a really great question and mm. one that I had to work out myself uh, just last week. I was just up in uh, in the Gold Coast for the Story Fest um, Children's Literature Festival, which was a really cool experience. And I was initially like incredibly panicked and confused because I never really um, intended this book to be read by anyone, you know, that much younger than me. I didn't think this book was going to get read by that many people at all. Um, so I'm kind of adjusting my expectations as the universe just as we go along. But um, I had some really 
incredible conversations with young people when I was there through that festival and, um, uh, you know, kids who are about like 13, 14. Um, and I discussed my work and I discussed um, the general kind of phenomenon of, of this book really just being about trying to find languages, however complex, to talk about something that you love, however problematic. Mm. Um, and they got it. And I was really paranoid that it would be overwhelming and the style would be ostracising and that they would feel very um, uh, excluded or alienated from a work like this, particularly as it was throwing quite a lot of anger and rage at them for something that they're only like now slowly starting to understand uh, what their, you know, what their relation to those issues might be. Um, but I had a lot of young people like telling me that they were very excited to be reading it and like sitting in the library when I was in there going through it. So um, I'd say that like I would encourage if people want to share this book with young people, I would encourage that to be as a part of a conversation. Um, mm -hmm. There are some poems that can absolutely be read um, for quite young audiences. I've had Oh, some, you know, I've had a couple of poems taught to like regular students. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, intended for, uh, it's intended for whoever feels ready to have that conversation. And sometimes a bit of support around that would be, um, would be a good thing. So yeah, get it for the nieces and nephews if you're feeling like you'd like to talk to them about it, I suppose. I think we've got time for one more question from the chat and Megan has anticipated one of my questions. Thank you, Megan. Um, Evelyn, you've mentioned some wonderful writers and pieces of writing that have influenced or inspired you. Are there any other writers or pieces of writing you've enjoyed recently that you'd like to recommend after everyone's read your book, of course? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, so um, just off of the top of my head, the two books that I'm reading at the moment um, Adam Thompson's born into this and Adam and I did the next chapter alongside each other and I love his mm. his storytelling. I love his short stories. So I've been really enjoying reading that, particularly when I saw like the early development of that work. Um, and another one, and I swear I'm not just trying to sell UQP, um, but <laughs> I'm incredibly excited that uh, Driftpal Cree Nation poet and essayist Billy Ray Belcourt has been published in Australia for the first time. Um, and so I think at this stage it's just his latest essay collection, um, uh, which I've now forgotten the name of. It might be uh, This Wound is a World or something like that. That's one of the titles mm. of his book. But it's... Um, really stunning collection of essays and I have I have really loved I've loved reading that recently um but yeah I I uh also you know like it's a good so far it's already like a really strong year for poetry um Ella O'Keefe and Elena Gomez have both just released beautiful new collections so I'm enjoying those too so um I think we're going to have a really good poetry year um but uh we'll we're just at the start of it so we'll sort of see how um see how that goes but yeah definitely check out Adam's book and check out Billy's if I could ever work out its title and I'm really sorry because I loved that book so <laughs> sorry I think it's it's very fair to have a moment of appreciation for UQP right now as well because they are publishing some truly wonderful books at the moment of course yours but even um, the past couple of years, they've been really publishing some excellent and important work. Tony Birch's book, all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, and he's got another two. He's got, like, I think another two coming out this year because yeah. he's insane, apparently, and can just <laughs> pump those out. So I'm very, I'm also really excited to read those pretty soon. And is it, that's poetry, isn't it, Tony's? One's poetry and yep. I believe one is another novel. So it'll be oh, exciting. Brilliant. Well, that's something to look mm. forward to for all of us. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question and it's going to be a big question just to wrap up, mm -hmm. just, just for fun. Why not? What's your favorite thing about writing poetry? Uh, <laughs> I think I, I do. And I know I keep harping on about community and shit and it kind of probably comes off as like a false modesty, but honestly, I do really feel like what I love about writing poetry is reading other people's poetry and having conversations with other poets, going to launches and events and these 
conversations and engagements. And it might just be because a poem and even a collection of poetry, it's something that you can wrap your head around and um, kind of enter into into feelings and dialogues with. Like if I, if I was hanging around with a bunch of novelists, I feel like we'd be talking about character and mm. plot and these big, big things. But with poetry in the poetry community like we spend so much time just talking about language and talking about concepts and the tiny ways that we've tried to break things apart or understand things a little bit better with our own work and um that that is really precious for me and I love that and then like maybe the the kind of the secondary answer to that um I've become quite comfortable with writing about things that I really struggle to be vulnerable about in any other context. So I am actually like, you know, I don't know if people would necessarily think this, but like I am really bad at expressing how much I like care about the people in my life. I like, you know, my boyfriend tells me he loves me and I'm just like, that's nice. <laughs> um, I need to leave. I have an appointment somewhere. Um, but then I'll just go and like write him like 10 poems and then just like send him a Google Drive folder and be like, you can look at it if you want. Um, so it, poetry like 100% gives me a space to access feelings and emotions that I am just like, I, I always try to be just way too stone cold in real life. Um, so if I didn't have that, I would probably have to go to even more therapy. So I like that it is generally speaking, a more affordable way of doing a mental health care plan. That's, that's my third answer. <laughs> I love that. Three beautiful answers. Um, and, but so wholesome and pure that that's how you express your love. I love that. That's really nice. Um, and I think a beautiful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I could talk to you for many more hours, alas, not today. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions and the audience's questions. Thank you to the audience for your questions. They were excellent. Um, and yeah, I hope everyone has a lovely night and thank you again, Evelyn. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Yara. Thank you, booksellers and everything and everybody for joining and listening. And um, if you don't like drop bear please don't ask for a refund we need to support independent booksellers right now i'll just i'll just find some way of paying you later don't worry yeah everyone get out and um buy this book from your local bookseller or request it at your library please that was evelyn Araluen in conversation with ellen cregan presented in partnership with kill your darlings we run regular author talks at all branches of yarra libraries and online so please keep an eye on our website for you, we'd recommend Jessie Tu discussing her book A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing on Wednesday 19th of May. You can register for that one via our website. We also thoroughly recommend buying a copy of Drop Bear from your local bookstore or placing a hold on one of our in-branch copies. It's a red-hot read at a few of our branches. We'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, it's chilly out and Yarra Libraries is curled up with a cat eating leftover Easter chocolate. And we hope you're just as cosy. See you next time.